All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33. If you're using the Bible that's provided for you in the pew rack in front of you, that is on page uh, 754. 754. Isaiah chapter 33. I tell you what, I love hearing the voices of my brothers and sisters in our faith family as we rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ and his faithful, finished, complete work that is ours through him. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Would you pray with me? God, as we open up your word now, we ask your mercy to be upon us in power, in giving great stirring in our hearts, not by any, uh, any, any, any contriving or manipulation or anything like that on my part as a speaker, as a preacher, but by the power of your word at work applied and moving in the hearts of those who sit under the preaching of your word. So Lord, we pray and ask your mercy in this. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Recently, I was helping a friend who was applying for a new job. And so I was looking over his uh, resume and some of the paperwork he had filled out for the application. And as, as I was doing so, Um, I noticed that, you know, there's all these areas where you list, okay, here's my qualifications, here's my skill set, here's my previous work experience, everything I think I can bring to the table. And I did not see a place where you list your weaknesses. I did not see a place where you list the times in the past where you've fallen on your face and failed. And I thought to myself, well, this is actually quite common, is it not? I imagine any of you or or none of you have ever had that kind of experience in a job application or interview process. Maybe you've been in an interview where a potential boss asked you, you know, what what are weaknesses that you have or areas in which you need to improve? And then you you muster the whole, uh, well, I, I care too much, you know. I work too hard. That's probably my greatest weakness. And, you know, you, you, you try that kind of thing to to bend your weaknesses into your strengths, to boast upon yourself. We don't like our weaknesses. We don't like our failures to be exposed before those around us, especially before those who might give us a paycheck or admit us to their school or admit us into some other place or group that we would want to be a part of. We don't like them before the world. How many of you went and posted on Facebook sharing the details of that uh, that dispute or that fight or that argument that you had with your spouse this week. No, you posted dinner or you posted a, a, a loving story or something like that to make yourself look better. You don't post the argument you have with the spouse. You don't post the bad grade that you got on the test. We hide from those, but we know they're there. We know that failure is far too common in the human life And if we're honest, failure is also far too common in the Christian life. We are not a gathering of perfect, without fault individuals. We are a gathering of all of us 
who some may walk in, but some may metaphorically limp in, carrying behind them a record of failure before God, ways in which you wish that you could have served him better, or ways in which you wish you would have been more obedient, or you continue to struggle with some kind of issue that continues to plague you. So the question that we asked this morning is, is there hope for people like that? Not the ones who have no failures. Not the ones who have nothing to say when that question is asked, what's your greatest weakness? But the one who, when you're asked, what is your greatest weakness? Or tell me about a time that you have failed. You have a hard time mustering up one because you have hundreds. So in Isaiah 33, we're going to see how God addresses that today. As it relates to those of us who try to serve God, who try to pursue Him with faithful obedience. And yet we find we are haunted by continual failure. What Isaiah 33 shows us, what I want to hold out before you in, 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 in great detail as we look at Isaiah 33, is this promise that though your continued failure to trust God haunts you, look to Him and He will cover you in astonishing grace. Let me say this again. Though you may be haunted, though you may even be tormented, by echoes, by memories, by, by continued reminders, even today, of continued failures in serving and walking in obedience with God. Look to Him, and He will cover you in His grace. Okay? So we're going to see this in Isaiah chapter 33. We're going to see how we make our way through growing in trust in God, understanding truth about ourselves and our God, and then how that brings us to a beautiful triumph in Christ. Okay? Trust, truth, triumph. First, let's look at trust in God. In verses 1 through 6 of Isaiah 33. Now, it would be helpful if we got a little context before we dive right in. Well, if you're familiar with where we've been, you've been with us regularly, you know the where we are in, in, in Isaiah, the people of Judah are... Uh, uh, nearing a great conflict with Assyrian armies to the north who are far more powerful, far more uh, mighty, have great, greater military might, have greater numbers in their armies, and the people of Judah are terrified. So and if you wanted to, you could actually make note of this and go back to it later. You could go to 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 13 to 18, and you'll actually find the account that... Uh, the historical account of what happens that informs Isaiah 33 and this prophecy from Isaiah. What happened is the people of Judah were so terrified of the Assyrians that they uh, agreed to a bribe with the Assyrian leaders. And so they took a bunch of silver out of the, the temple treasury and they even stripped gold off the temple doors and they loaded up the silver, they loaded up the gold, they put it in carts, put it in carriages, and they were going to take it out to the Assyrians who were, who were gathering outside the city ready to invade. They were going to take it out to them in an effort to try to bribe them for their peace. To keep them at bay, saying, hey, we will be subservient to you. We will, we, will, we will pay you. We'll pay you off. Just you stay away. So imagine as they're loading it all up and they're, they're walking it out there and they're carrying it out there. And maybe they're too far away to hear what's happening and hear what's going on in these conversations. But they're, they're observing this and you start to see from the body language that this is not going well. What happened is the Assyrians said, yeah, we had a deal. 
we'll take the gold, we'll take the silver, and we're going to still invade. And so now this is where the people of Judah find themselves. Remember earlier in uh, the previous chapters in Isaiah, they had looked for Egypt to protect them. Now they look to make a bribe with Assyria for protection, and that doesn't, doesn't work out. And now, finally, in Isaiah 33, after they've looked in all the wrong places, they now find and they turn back to God in repentance in the midst of their failure. And God does not say to them, hey, where have you been? He rises up in might and in strength and in mercy for them. Look at this. Look at this in Isaiah 33, verse 1. I want you to see something powerful right at the outset here. Literally, the very first word, ah, ah. That might not sound powerful to you, does it? But actually, from Isaiah chapter 28 through 33 now, this is the sixth time that this word ah, or one, one place I think in Isaiah 31 it's, it says woe, uh, but these are all the same basic root Hebrew word uh, of this word of warning, this word of judgment that God is bringing upon his audience. But now where the first five have been directed at the people of Judah in their disobedience to God, now the sixth one, God says ah, and he rises up against not Judah, but the Assyrians. Ah, you destroyer who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Where's this born out of? It's born out of verse 2. Listen to the people of Judah in verse 2. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. God may have been their plan Z, but they turned to Him. And their loving, gracious Father met them in mercy and in might for their protection. So here's who Isaiah 33 is for. As we start to make our way through it. Isaiah 33 is for you who feel like you continue to fail before God. Isaiah 33 also, though, is for maybe the person who says, okay, I'm doing pretty good. I'm living my life over here. Got God over here. And God, you do your thing. I'll do mine. I'll check in from time to time if need be. But keep your distance. I'm going to go about my business. Isaiah 33 is for you to file away right now when things inevitably come crashing down. So it's for the the failure, the soon to fail, or it's for those of us who just can't get enough of God's grace. You drink it. You yearn for it. You want to breathe the air of God's grace. You can't wait for heaven. Isaiah 33 is just injected into you. Glory and glory and glory of grace and hope. So this is who this is for. Now, Sometimes, as I said, sometimes we imagine this whole Christianity thing to be a pretty buttoned up affair. We put on our Sunday best. I don't even know, I mean, I know where that, I I don't know where that term came from, but it's always been kind of odd to me. It's always just, just like, 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 who are we trying to impress? 
<laughs> why, what, what, what are we trying to do? Do we think that God can see us here but not see us there? It's kind of the same thing I, I don't understand. I mean, I understand a, a matter and attitude of respectfulness, but sometimes uh, uh, I'll be around folks who, who, who will, will uh, perhaps say something a little profane or say something a little uh, 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 off-color, and they've even said it in here. They say, oh, don't say that in church, as if God only sees them in church. And it's like, oh, yeah, he's only tuned in for an hour, hour and a half, uh, one, one day a week. I, get, I understand where it comes from, and I get it. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just seeking to bring to light here something for us to see. And that is that, that a true understanding of what it means to know God is not some buttoned-up issue where I put on my Sunday best, I polish myself up, I put my makeup on, I, I can compile my, my uh, resume, and I bring all these things to God and say, don't you want a follower like me? No, 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 no. Isaiah 33, and in fact, all of Christianity, hear me on this, hear me on this. It's for the ones who need grace deeply, even in a manner in which they need it to survive. And they know it. They know it. Can we resolve together as a church, in fact... That in all the things we do, all the things that we give our efforts to, all the things that we would give our attention to, all the conversations that we would have with one another, all the growth groups, all the gathering for worship, every little thing that we do, let's just resolve together that based on what we see in Isaiah 33 and throughout the rest of the Bible, that we're going to put the grace on the bottom shelf so anyone can reach it. Let's resolve that together. See, what this is in Isaiah 33 is a humiliation-drenched trust. Judah knows that God has not been their first option. They come to him in their shame. They literally forsook him, disobeyed him, and then asked him to pay the bill with the gold and the silver from the temple. And we see, if you want to make note of it, we're not going to spend time in it just for the sake of time. In verses 3, 4, and 5, and 6, what does it look like to know God and not just try to use God? Verse 3, it's believing in His power. Verse 4, it's understanding the harm and power that these enemies that seek your destruction have, but being confident in Him. And in verses 5 and 6, it's a resolve to trust in God, no matter what the future may hold. And look at the end of verse 6. This is fascinating. Verse 6 will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. That is interesting. A people who have been flippant towards God, now they are finding that fear and reverence before God is their treasure, is their life. Is a possession that they will not forsake. There is grace in the fear of God, but there is deathly deceit in flippancy towards Him. The same holy God who is revealed in Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
He stands before us and beckons us into the throne room of his glory, but beckons us in there that we might revere his name, that we might fear his name, not fear him as if he is about to squash us, but fear him as in we see his might, we see his glory, we see his power, we see the manner by which he reigns over ourselves, our world, even our failures, and we know that we can entrust ourselves to him. But... The issue before us is that God does not go halfway. As one commentator I read this week said, God cannot be your lucky rabbit's foot and you see him in the majesty of his glory. God cannot be the good luck charm that you keep in your pocket or that you call upon in particular trial. And you know the nearness and the preciousness of his presence with you in the terrible storm that you walk through. It's part of what we read in Acts chapter 17 that Alice read. It pointed out God is not some totem to be superstitious about. He is a being. He is our creator. He is the one who rules over us. To be adored. And in him there is treasure. Because, because, because. He hears and he sees all of the failures. All of the baggage. All of the shortcomings. And he does not turn away or push you away. But he draws you closer. So the first way. We walk into this grace, even carrying the baggage of our failure, is in humiliation-drenched trust. The next way is in painful, life-giving truth. Trust demands truth. This is not trust pie in the sky. This is trust grounded in facts, grounded in reality, grounded in sureness. It demands truth about who God is. It demands honesty about yourself and ourselves and the situation in which we find ourselves. This is what we see in verse 7 with the people of Judah. Remember, they had warriors who were going to defend them. Well, verse 7, behold, their heroes cry in the streets. Remember, they sent out their best diplomats to try to broker and barter peace or broker and barter protection. Their envoys of peace weep bitterly. Have the heroes and the envoys that you have sought protection from, whether they be in a relationship, whether they be in a, a, even a, even a friendship, something that you sought life in, that you needed this thing, you needed this person in order to have vibrancy, in order to have, in order to have purpose. And it came up short. It came up lacking. You put years into it and all you got out of it was a broken heart and confusion about who you are and why you are here. They cry in the streets. They weep bitterly. Going further, the highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Verse 9, Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. These Lebanon, Sharon, Carmel, Bashan, they they describe a few different 
understandings of these places that God has established His people only to see them bring about ruin to them. Lebanon, this permanent source of power. Sharon, this beautiful place that is now a desert. Bashan and Carmel, they, they were fertile. They were places of great fruitfulness, great provision, great, great abundance. And now they have lost their leaves. I want to pause here. Can I share with you one of the most clear apologetics or, or defenses for why I think the Bible is true? I say, can I share with you? Nobody's going to stop me, right? Like, like come on, Stephen. Like, 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 okay. Throughout the Bible, any people, any uh, individual that, that has much of a prominent role, much of a featured role, much of a character development of them at all throughout the Bible, you repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly see them not brought up at their greatest and their most majestic and their most beautiful, but you see them brought sometimes from great power to great humiliation. You see their shame. You see their literal and even spiritual adultery. You see their crimes they commit, murder. You see the, the ways in which they, they bring shame upon their name, shame upon even the people of God. You see like Judah here, who they had, God had brought them out of, Exodus, out of Egypt into the promised land, and now the promised land is in ruin because of their disobedience against him. All throughout the Bible, this is what you see. And what you see here is the same people that write it, the same people that record it, the same people that pass it on from generation to generation, they're the ones that are the failures in the story. So why do they do this? I don't know about you, but if like there was a story that, or a book that contained all of my greatest failures, I'm not going to mass produce that thing and pass it on to others. And go hide it in the attic, hide it in the basement, burn it. And then go steal them or buy them from all the bookstores that have it and burn them too. Do you like your dirty laundry aired out for the world to see? I don't. So why is this? It's because all these people who continually find themselves in this place, what they have found themselves when they hit that rock bottom is they have found themselves in the presence of and under the majesty and the grace of a God who redeems them at that lowest point so that the grace of God consumes them to a point where they hold out their failures, they hold out their shortcomings, and they say, let them be what they are. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and I need others to hear this. It's one of the great reasons why I think the Bible is true. The same people that gave it to us, it doesn't make them look good. It makes their God look good. Think of the disciples. Think of the guys who were responsible for much of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was killing Christians. And then he gave us much of the New Testament, and he didn't hold out the part where he was killing Christians before he became one. The disciples are a three-year comedy of errors of not understanding Jesus and Jesus telling them to get behind him and Jesus telling them they don't understand him and even calling them Satan at times because they so opposed the message that he was trying to make known. And here it is for us to see because they had saw their Lord crucified, resurrected, and reigning over them and he was their life. And so, what they had seen... It caused the verse seven through eight or seven through nine to pale in comparison was what we see in verse ten. The Lord says after the after this this devastating di- diagnosis of the state of Judah, the Lord says in verse ten, "Now I will arise," says the Lord. 
As I was studying this week, I put five exclamation marks next to that line. I don't know, I don't know how many I should have put, but that seemed a good amount. The Lord sees them in their despair and in their destruction. And the Lord says, now I will arise. I was your backup plan. I was not on your radar. You turned from me. I see it and I arise for you. I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. And the Lord really brings it all, brings how we understand ourselves and our world and all that we don't want others to see. He brings it all into the forefront, into perspective for us. In verse 11, when he says, you conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. He basically says your life is but... A moment, and it is but weak and pitiful, apart from me. The advanced degrees you have, the great accomplishments, the professional acclaim, rising to the top of the corporate ladder, uh, getting as many commas as you've ever dreamed of in your bank account or in your investments. The Lord says it's chaff, it's stubble. One of my favorite stories as a child was... I don't know, it was a nursery rhyme, not a nursery rhyme, the, the three little pigs. You know, the, the, I forget the big bad wolf, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. You know, it's a biblical story. It's Isaiah 33. I actually don't know if it's biblically inspired, but it, you know, it works. You know, one of them built, built his house out of straw, one of them built his house out of sticks, and one of them built his house out of bricks. Big bad wolf comes along, I huff and I puff and I blow the house down, made out of stuff, uh, out of out of straw, then I huff and I puff and I blow the house down made out of sticks, and then the one that's out of bricks uh, survives, I think. I don't know, it's been about 30 years since I was in that one, but I think that's how it works. Jesus told us the same thing. Build your house upon the rock. Don't build your house on the shifting sands of this life. Don't build your house on the shifting sands of your own self-reliance, of your own uh, uh, vain uh, delusions of your own strength and of your own wisdom and of your own uh, pragmatism and of your own uh, education and all of these things. Maybe you've done this. Maybe you've reached that point and you're saying, yeah, it does seem a little like stubble, like chaff. Kind of asking questions. Some might paint it as a midlife crisis. Some might paint it as explainable in some other way. I paint it as what's going on in my heart, what's going on in my world, these things that I thought I understood, I don't. Well, the Lord says, come from the chaff and the stubble that your life has been anchored in and set your eyes and set your gaze upon me. But what this demands of us is this man's truth. This demands knowing who we are and who our God is. It does not demand fantasy. It does not demand fiction. It does not demand creating God how we want him to be. It demands in trusting ourselves and our lives and our own circumstances into his grasp. So we must be brutally honest, even when painful. We must acknowledge the truth and allow and see God to rise up to be our precious, precious treasure. 
We must also be brought to trust in him even when it is humiliation or drenched by humiliation. And when we are brought to those things, when we see the truth for what it is about ourselves and our own failures before God, and when we see the manner by which we are called to trust in him, it is then that we reach a point where we can have and know beautiful triumph as we see in the rest of the chapter. Listen to what God says in verse 13. Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. So that far off, that near, that kind of encompasses everyone, right? Totality there. Far off, near, all of you. Hear and know what I have done in my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized them. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Whom among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Well, verse 15, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions and shakes his hand lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ear from hearing bloodshed and shuts his eye from looking on evil. The one who not only confesses God as his Lord, but the one who actually follows God. The one who doesn't just say things, the one who does things. This is what Isaiah is getting at. And maybe you feel this morning, who can dwell with the consuming fire of this God? My failures are far too great. My baggage, it, it, I care, I, I've, got, I've got loads of baggage. I'm rolling it all through the airport of my life and I'm not going to make it through security. There's going to be way too much that's going to be stopped and exposed there, and I can't get by. God says, you can in me. And look at verse 16. He will dwell on the heights. Now look, I want you to see verse 16. He will dwell on the heights. Now look back at verse 5. It says, the Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. And here's what God is saying, what God is revealing to us. You want to dwell in the heights of knowing your security is found in me? You want to dwell in the heights of feeling as if uh, trial and, and terror and hardship and calamity is undoing you in this life? You want to dwell in the midst of not being escaping from danger, but understanding and knowing the consuming fire of my presence in the midst of that affliction? That it is in me. And can I share with you how it is in him? Remember how in 2 Kings 18, it mentioned how the people of, of Judah literally made God pay for their betrayal? This is not the first time in Scripture where God has paid, or this is not the only time where God has paid for the terrible transgressions and failures of His people. If we were to fast forward to the cross, we find where He does not pay with silver and gold, but He pays with His own blood and body broken for you and for me.
I don't know that Isaiah had this fully developed, clear, high-definition, vivid picture of the grace of God that would unfold in the centuries after him. But he had enough of it that he could write verse 17, Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. God brings us from terrible, terrible, repeated failure before him to the point that through Christ we will see the king in his beauty. In verse 18, your heart will muse on the terror. And this, this, this references a time where the people were were, uh, were, were being sized up, were being measured for their own uh, corruption, for their own calamity, where in, in times where uh, uh, oppressors over them would keep a census on them to keep the people under their thumb. And he says, where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is, is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people. The people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend. That's those who would come from outside and seek your destruction. Stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Do you recognize that week by week by week by week by week by week that we sing of the triumphs of Christ and we sing of the life that we have in Him? We are in one sense doing what verse 18 says. We are musing on the terror that we once faced. But we are rejoicing in the one who has conquered it. Do you realize the invitation to Christ? If you aren't quite sure about him, this is an invitation to be brought to a place where you will one day look back upon your greatest fears your greatest sorrows, your greatest agonies, the greatest ways you felt your life was unraveled and undone. And you will find and rejoice in the grace of a God who rose up to protect and to defend you even as your world was burning. When we sing the victory of Christ because of the work he has done and our union with him we sing of the victory that is ours we know it in this life we will enjoy it and experience it unhindered and unblemished for eternity Listen to verse 20. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will there be any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, no majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, Lord is our king. He will save us. Basically, he's saying here, your protection will be God. He will be your provision. And you who are fleeing, who are worrying about the crumbling of your city, 
in the city to come, the stakes of your life will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. There's promises in this beautiful triumph of God that if I can speak straightforwardly, bluntly with you, it might be that your life right now, or even much of your life as you have known it, has been a metaphorical hell. You struggle with psychological things that you don't understand. And you can't seem to get past. You struggle with relational discord and strife with all of those who are supposed to be nearest and dearest to you. And it leaves you lonely and conflicted and in agony. You struggle with brutal physical pain and sorrow. What the promises of this beautiful triumph of God for his people realize for us is that those memories that these things will one day be will be memories that somehow in glory we see them, we might remember them faintly, but they sing a tune of the triumph of God over the evil. That would seek our destruction. And the Lord is our protection. And our provision. Throughout. Verse 22. He's our judge. He's our lawgiver. He's our king. He will save us. One way I'm going to apply this message. Later today. Is I'm going to go buy groceries. Our refrigerator is empty. Thankfully, we have a pretty secure system where we can buy groceries. I'm going to go to the store, and there might be a few items that are missing, but most of them are going to be there. And I generally have an idea of where they are in the store and how much they'll be and all of that. It'll be a pretty simple process. And because I'm that way, I'll try to beat my previous record time for how quick I got through the grocery store. What God is telling his people here is that you will one day not even have to go forage or you will not even have to go find food. I will be your sustenance. I will be your provision. And that's different to a people who are being run out of their homes or who are dealing with famine or who are dealing with catastrophe and natural disaster where food is not as easy to come by before this. Another way God is our protection. He's our lawgiver. He's our sureness, our safety. The home security system you have, that's a product of a fallen world. You will not need that in glory. You will not need to look over your shoulder. You will not need to change your password every three weeks to log into your bank account or to your credit card or anything like that because hackers may have stolen it. Allow little inconveniences like that. Not hackers stealing your identity. That'd be a bigger inconvenience. But the little inconvenience of having to change a password because of sin of man. Allow that to cause your heart in the frustration of having to change it for the 15th time this year. Allow that to cause your heart to sing the praise of God where one day all will be secure. And there will be no evil that seeks our undoing. 
So how will we reach heaven? In our Sunday best? With our resumes in hand, here's how I measure up, God. Aren't you glad to have me? I think I make heaven look better than it did already. Well, actually, in some ways, we will make heaven look better than it does already. Don't take that too far. I'm not being heretical here. But not in the way you or I think. We will arrive as trophies of the grace and the glory of God who brings us safely to port. Not as majestic ships whom He has constructed, whom He has built, and whom He has said, come look and adore and, and, and behold the beauty and the goodness of this. But we will be ships that arrive safely, battered and beaten by the storm, but safely home. And listen to the beautiful triumph of the promise that you will receive, no matter how much failure you carry in this life, in this moment, in this soul, in this year, in this decade. Listen to the ship in verse 23. Its cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. It is a ship that is battered and tattered and falling apart. It reaches home. But it reaches there. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. You may feel you are hanging on by a thread. And you may literally be hanging on by a thread. promise here is you will get there even carrying your failures and even sorrowful over them but you will get there hanging on by that thread and you will sing of the great faithful deep love of God that has brought you safely home And He has brought you safely home, not only because forces all around you sought to derail your soul and sought to turn you away from God, but even in your own sinfulness, you were slow and refusing to turn to Him and entrust yourself to Him. But He arose and came to you. And He grabs us. And He promises He will bring us to this place where all sickness and sin will be no more. And the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Own your failures before Him today. Let the grace hang low. Let's quickly nourish one another and hydrate one another in that grace day by day. Committed together in this as a church family. And one way in which we live in that grace together today in our failures is promising each other that those failures will be overrun and triumphed over and they will be nothing but distant memories. And we see the one. We see his face, the king and his beauty, the king of grace. Let's pray. God, we join in this refrain this beautiful triumph that we will enjoy in Christ.
not in ourselves and not because of ourselves. Maybe the first step to enjoying and knowing and treasuring that grace is acknowledging our need for it. Help us, Lord, to be a people who humble ourselves before you, who openly acknowledge and confess our great need for you, the truth of what your word says about us and about yourself, and then cast ourselves deeply upon your mercy, knowing that you will bring us with our sails that can't stand up straight, with our tattered mast, with our Uh, with our ship that is falling apart, bubblegum patching up the sides of it as we reach harbor. But you will have brought us there safely. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.